We are in this sequence of thought right now, deeper, wider, higher. So we've been looking deeper into some of the stories of the Bible, and we'll finish this series off at the end of August. Then we're going to talk a little bit about looking wider than we usually look. Most of us in life look kind of through a narrow vision, and I think we miss things because we don't have the bigger panoramic view of certain things. So that's what we'll do beginning in September. So today we're going to talk about this story I read for you out of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 11 verses 12 through 26. This is one of those stories that I think is a head-scratcher. Number one is when you talk about the fig tree, why does Jesus have such animosity toward this fig tree, right? Number two, this is a story that is often kind of frozen in time. And what I mean by that is sometimes certain stories have one interpretation that kind of latches on uh, to the way we look at a passage of Scripture, and we don't think from looking at it from a different angle. And so today I'm going to look at it from a little bit different angle, and that's what the Gospel writers do. This is a story that is found in all four Gospels. Interesting. Mark has a version, Matthew has a version, Luke has a version, John has a version, and they're all different. It's the same story, but there's shades of differences in the way they are told. There's even a little bit difference in chronology as well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about this being something that happens at the beginning of the last week called the Passion Week of Christ. John moves this story all the way to the beginning of his gospel, right after the changing of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana which is interesting. So it has often made people think, were there two times that Jesus went in and cleared the temple, or is there only one time? But the writer of the Gospels choose to place these stories where they think they will be most powerful. Well, we're going to take Mark's sequence today. And in Mark chapter 11, it begins in chapter 11 with Jesus approaching Jerusalem. We often call that what? Palm Sunday, right? So Jesus enters into Jerusalem and there's a crowd that's proclaiming Hosanna to him. Now in Mark's account, he goes back to a little village called Bethany after Palm Sunday and then he returns to Jerusalem on Monday. So it's almost as if he enters in Jerusalem, he looks around and then he decides very consciously to go back into Jerusalem on Monday and he makes his way to the temple and he has already planned in his mind what he's going to do. Now, Matthew and Luke tell us that he went into the temple area on Palm Sunday and it was almost kind of like spontaneous response that he goes in and he sees these money changers that are taking advantage of the people and he gets a whip and he begins to clear them out. Mark's version is completely different. Mark's version is actually the earliest version. It is the oldest version and probably Luke and Matthew use Mark's version. 
And what's unique about Mark's version is what I said to you uh, as I was reading it. It has an Oreo effect to it. So take a look. Incident A, Incident B, Incident 2A. So Incident A, he is walking along and he sees a fig tree and he's hungry. And he wants to take some of the fruit from this fig tree and eat it, but he can't do it because Mark tells us it's not the season for figs. Interesting, right? So how can he expect to have fruit if it's not the season for it? So if we have our chronology correct, Palm Sunday occurs around Easter uh, time, and, and that's the spring. It's the same time as the Passover in Jewish celebration. So we're looking at the end of March, beginning of April. It's not the time for figs. Okay, then the shift of focus is to Jesus going into the temple and clearing out the people that are there, that are selling doves, exchanging money, that type of thing. And then on his return to the little village of Bethany, on Monday, not Sunday, he sees that the tree has withered. So the first incident, we find him going in and he curses this fig tree for not having fruit, clears out the temple, and then on the way out, Peter recognizes that now this tree is dead. Strange, isn't it? So what is going on here? Now, it seems a little bit out of place that Jesus would curse a tree for not having fruit out of season. So here's where we need a little bit of agriculture understanding. So F.F. Bruce, in his book called Hard Sayings of the Bible, this is what he says about this passage. Was it not unreasonable to curse the tree for being fruitless when, as Mark expressly says, it was not the season for figs? The problem is most satisfactory Uh, satisfactorily cleared up in a discussion called The Barren Fig Tree, published many years ago by W.M. Christie, a Church of Scotland minister in Palestine under the British mandatory regime. He pointed out, first, the time of the year at which the incident is said to have occurred, if, as is probable, Jesus was crucified on April A.D. 30, The incident occurred during the first days of April. Now, wrote Christie, the facts connected with the fig tree are these. Toward the end of March, the leaves begin to appear, and in about a week, the foliage coating is complete. Coincident with this, and sometimes even before, there appears quite a crop of small knobs. Not real figs, but a kind of an early forerunner. They have grown to the size of green almonds, in which condition they are eaten by peasants and others when hungry. When they come to their own indefinite maturity, they drop off. These precursors of the true fig are called takish in Palestinian Aramaic. Their appearance is a harbinger of the truly formed appearance of the true fig some six weeks later. So, as Mark says, the time for figs has not yet come. But if the leaves appear without any tarkish, that is a sign that there will be no figs. Since Jesus found nothing but leaves, leaves without the tarkish, 
he knew that it was absolutely hopeless, fruit, uh, a fruitless fig tree, and said as much. So, F.F. Bruce, in his book, is basically saying this. I think it'll help you with me giving you a picture. Okay. So, this is a fig tree. It probably looks like something Jesus would observe when he is traveling into Jerusalem. He sees this fig tree, and he's hungry, so he goes up to it, and he's not expecting this type of fig. Not the fully formed type of fig. At least what he is expecting is the forerunner of this, which are these little nodules. Okay? And as was said in F.F. Bruce's quote here, these also people ate, people who were peasants, people who were hungry, would take off these little nodules and eat these. But on this occasion, this tree didn't even have these little nodules. So Jesus also knew that if this tree doesn't have this little nodule, then it's not going to produce the other type of fig that we are talking about when we look at something like this. So that knowledge helps us a little bit. He goes in, he clears out the temple. And then on the way back, what we find is that he sees that the tree has withered. Now what's going on here? Well, the first thing that we need to do is understand, at least from Mark's perspective, this was a pre-planned action. This wasn't a temple, uh, uh, a temper tantrum in the temple, or we might call it a temple tantrum. This was a planned action. This is something that he did intentionally. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem is a political and economic center in the first century, and the temple was supported by the tithes and offerings of the people. And Herod the Great rebuilt the temple that was destroyed from the Old Testament. And it was a massive rebuilding project. The people that controlled the temple was the high priesthood. Now, a little bit of a cultural context helps us out here. The high priesthood was a complex arrangement. Because it was the Romans that appointed the high priests. Oh, okay. This isn't something that's coming from the Jews. When Rome controls, it also places who they want in power. Okay? So keep that in the back of your mind. Rome controls who the high priest is, and there is a collusion of both government and religion. Okay, now we're beginning to see what Jesus is talking about here. He knows that the temple area is no longer a house of prayer for all people and all nations. It's basically something that's being controlled by the Roman Empire. So what he does is a little bit of guerrilla theater. And what I mean by that is in the Old Testament... Sometimes prophets would often do things that were really strange to get the attention of the people. Like one prophet laid for days naked in the street. Another prophet actually cooked a meal over human excrement. And on and on it goes. And it's something that the people would not forget, right? Look at that goofball. He's laying naked in the street. Look at this guy over here. He's cooking meal over dung. You know, 
And all of this was guerrilla theater, dramatic theater, to make a point. Now, the frozen interpretation of the clearing of the temple is that these money changers shouldn't have been there. These people selling all of these animals shouldn't have been there. No, that's not true. When you think about people coming to the temple from all over the place, they needed to exchange their coinage. So you needed that type of person to be able to exchange the currency. Well, what Jesus is irate about is not the fact that there's a money changer there. And it was really impractical for people to bring their own animal. Let's say they're traveling all the way from the Sea of Galilee area all the way down to Jerusalem. That animal without blemish could get hurt along the way. You're talking about 100 miles of travel. So the fact that they needed to exchange currency and the fact that they were buying things that they were offering to God as a sacrifice is not the problem. However, that is the frozen interpretation of this story many times. And it has led to other things. So if you've been in church at all in your uh, upbringing, you will know that uh, a lot of churches said, no, um, you can't sell anything in church. Everything has to be on a free will offering basis because this story is telling us that Jesus doesn't like people selling things, right? And that's kind of an easy and simplistic interpretation of this particular story. But it has carried on for a long, long time. So if you have people that come in, let's say it's someone that's doing a concert or somebody that's doing some teaching, uh, you can't charge ticket price, but it's always on a love offering basis. This is one of those passages where that's often applied to. And I think it's missing the point. Here's what I think is happening in this particular passage. When we understand that the money changers, as well as those selling animals, is what allowed the system to function, when Jesus clears out this area, the money changers, those selling animals, when they clear out, what stops? sacrifices. The sacrifices stop. If you don't have the money to buy an animal and you don't have an animal to offer as a sacrifice, well, what is happening? He is now making it a place only where people can come together. And quoting the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, verse 7, he is saying, this was meant to be a house of prayer for all people and all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Okay, hold on to that for a minute. So what Jesus is doing when he says this is he is quoting from the book of Jeremiah. So I have to read this for us. In Jeremiah chapter 7 in the Old Testament, I want you to listen closely to this passage of Scripture because it clears up for us what Jesus is talking about here. So this is Jeremiah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through the gates to worship the Lord. 
This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words that say, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Very similar passage. You know what was happening in Jeremiah's day and what was happening under the Roman control of the temple in the first century was people were taking advantage of other people, getting rich on it. The leadership that is in power is always people with power and always people with money and they appoint people in that same class. And when people come in and they are charged one of the things that happens is these people think that they are safe because they're in the temple. That's what it means in Jeremiah. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. People have the mentality, we can take advantage of other people, and we will not be hurt because we're under this shelter of being in the temple of the Lord. That's the way people use religion a lot of times, right? They go and they do what they want to do, but as long as they go to church on Sunday, God will overlook it, right? God will look the other way because we're in church or we're within the temple in this case here. So Marcus Borg, in his commentary, wrote these words. In all these stories, do not hear an indictment of Judaism. It's not a condemnation of the fact that there's a temple and offerings were going on. Judaism was not the problem. The problem was the imperial captivity of the temple and its authorities collaborating with the empire. Jesus is not protesting Judaism as a whole. He is protesting a group of people who are collaborating with the Roman Empire and it's affecting dramatically and deeply his homeland. Now when Jeremiah says it's become a den of robbers, I want you to take that uh, quite literally. When robbers hide out in a den, the crime has already been committed. All right? You don't go into a, a den of robbers and they rob you. They rob you outside and then they hide out in the den. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what's happening here. A den is where robbers go after they have robbed because they feel safe. And these people, both in the case of Jeremiah and in the case of Jesus, are using the temple as their den, as their hideaway. Does that make sense? Okay, so what are they doing? They're using religion to be able to protect their own self-interest and their profit. Does that make sense? So that is still going on today, is it not? Religion 
that is being used to legitimize the wealthy that are taking advantage of the poor. You, you know, in Jesus' day and in our day, there was the rich and the poor, and there wasn't much of a middle class. And what we find is many times there's political and economic domination of the many by the few. And I think that's a better interpretation of this story than simply thinking that Jesus is out to try to drive out the money changers and those that are selling animals uh, because he was disapproving of that. What he is really disapproving of is the type of leadership that's taking advantage of the people. Okay, let me give you an illustration. And this is getting very close to home. All right? If we confess that we are Christians and we are individuals, at least far-right, fundamental, evangelical-type Christians, we make up about 14% of our nation's population. 14%. And if you, if you are observing, of late especially, Politicians are using that form of religion to control the other 86% of the population in the country. Okay? We want everything our way. We want our people in power. We want them to give us the advantages and we want other people's religion, multiple religions in our country, and supposedly when this country was established, it was to be a safe place for all religions to express their faith. Nowadays what we're finding is this smaller group of Christians, and I don't think they fully realize, most people um, are realizing the motivation behind this. Why are we as Christians trying to get politicians in bed with us? so we can control what we want to see happen in our country. In my mind, this is the same thing as what was happening in the first century. It just might be that if Jesus was alive today, he would come into our churches and say, you have made this a den of robbers. You are robbing other people of their civil rights. You're robbing other people of their dignity. You're robbing other people of their freedoms. You're robbing other people. Who? Us? No, no, no. We're here worshiping the Lord. Marcus Borg goes on and says, God is a God of justice and righteousness, and when worship substitutes for justice, God rejects God's temple. In Mark's context, around the year 70 CE, the very fate that Jesus predicts happens when the temple is destroyed by the Roman Empire. The earliest recipients of Mark's gospel would have been acutely aware that Jesus is referring to the destruction of the temple. So that brings us back to the fig tree. So as they leave after the temple has been cleared out, Peter remembers he remembers what Jesus said as they were going in and this particular tree was cursed by Jesus. Well, what was he cursing? For having a form of promise that it could produce fruit, 
but it really wasn't going to produce any fruit. Do you see what it's saying? Okay. That it's only a form that's in place. That it's not going to produce fruit. And when Jesus curses it, what he is doing is he is cursing religion that will not serve people well. He is cursing religion that's controlled by a, a, a few people. And the fig tree is an appropriate symbol in this case because that's what was happening in his day and that is what often is happening in our day as well. What happens when evangelicalism goes off the rails? Scandal after scandal. Protecting power, protecting profit, and maximizing pleasure. This particular story, if we're going to take it to heart, is something that is condemning what we are seeing around us all the, day, all the time. The misuse of religion has sadly been an American tradition. In the beginning of our, the founding of our country, the misuse of Native Americans, the misuse of African Americans to build this country was all given uh, approval by the religious structures that were in place. Religious hypocrisy is nothing new, and neither is the blending of church and state. And our forefathers knew that this would happen. That's why they insisted on a separation of church and state. But this story is telling us to ask ourselves, do we think God will tolerate shady deals and shifty scheming? No. God tires of people that use religion for their own political purposes. So back to Mark for a moment. Peter remembers what Jesus said, that it's not producing fruit. But listen to how he ends this conversation. Jesus looks to his disciples and he says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. I tell you, anyone who says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that the, what they say will happen, it will be done for them. In context, what is the mountain? The mountain is the temple mount upon which the temple sits. If you say, away with this nonsense, right? Away with this. Let's get back to justice and love and righteousness and serving people and loving people and helping people. He says, you know, if you have faith in that, whatever you ask for will be done. And it has been done because there are always communities, smaller communities, that often persist on taking Jesus at his word and not try to utilize politics and the power of profit to control other people. And if we can get back to that very basic thing of understanding what this fig tree represents, it represents the control of the Judaism of its day that's not producing the fruit of righteousness. Does that make sense? And so God would challenge us as well. Don't allow corrupt leadership in the church and within our country to take away the rights and dignity and love that all people deserve. Serve people, love people, 
help people. So I think a good way to close out our time today is a prayer that Brian McLaren wrote, and I, I think it's so great that I want to use it for our service. Stand with me, please. Brian, in one of his blogs, wrote this prayer, and he says, Lord, help us to affirm our loyalty, not to this or that tree, but to the fruit they bear, not to this or that wineskin, but to the wine they are to carry. Help us not mistake style and appearance for substance and essence, like growing leaves and branches for fruit producing fruit. As individuals, Lord, even now, we yield ourselves to you to be tended and watered in our souls, to be pruned in our character for greater strength, so that we can bear good fruit in season. We know this holy week that a grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die in order to produce a crop. Help us to willingly accept the cutbacks, defeats, critiques, and setbacks that are necessary for us to be ever more fruitful in your resurrecting grace. What fruit are you looking for in humanity, Lord? We hear your Spirit's reply that you have shown us what is good, what you require, that we do justice, that we love kindness, that we walk in meekness before you. So let our lives be like fruitful trees, Lord. Each branch heavy with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We don't just want to take up space in your garden. We want to bear good fruit, bearing witness to your gracious goodness. Amen and amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he lift his countenance upon you. May he give to you his peace. Amen. Have a great week.